just two weeks ago, um, fellowship students uh, spent a week at camp at Lake Forest Ranch where we saw God work in the lives of our students. And, and one highlight that I brought back from that was a conversation that I got to have with one of our students. One of our students came to me and, and they were just broken over their sin, just broke, completely broken in shambles over their sin against God and, and felt the shame and then discouragement from that. And, and something that I gained from that and that conversation that I got to have with one of my students is, hey, we, we can rejoice, and you'll see the title, we can rejoice in repentance, and we rejoice in the fact that the Holy Spirit convicts us because we don't stay in that conviction. We don't stay in that shame and that discouragement. And it was really just an awesome conversation that I got to have with one of our students that, hey, praise God that he convicts your heart of sin. Praise God that he brings, you a t brings us all to a point, if we are his children, brings us to a point where we realize that our sin hurts God, and we realize that we have sinned against God. And, and I had that conversation with our student, and, and I just reminded her that, hey, we can rejoice in this. We're not defeated by sin because sin has already been defeated. So in the conviction that we feel, we don't rejoice in the sin that we committed, but we rejoice in the fact that God forgives us and the convicting work of the Holy Spirit is his love for us. So this morning, we're going to look, our, the bulk of our passage is going to be in Psalm 51, 1 through 12. And many of you may be familiar with this psalm. Uh, probably a year ago on a Wednesday night, I, I preached a little bit of out of Psalm 51, but Psalm 51, uh, this is David's repentant prayer of his sin with Bathsheba. And what we're going to do this morning, if you guys will, bear with me. We're going to do a lot of reading. So I told you to turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to read all of chapter 11 and the first 14, 14, I'm sorry, 14 verses of chapter 12. And the reason we're doing this is so that we can have some context as to where David is coming from when we jump back over to Psalm 51 and we see his heart and his attitude and his emotions behind this repentant prayer that we see in Psalm 51. Psalm, 2 Samuel chapter 11 verse 1. It says, in the spring of the year of the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Verse 2, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the, he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, but more importantly, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Verse 4, So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all of the servants of his lord and did not go down in, into his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? 
Check out what Uriah says in verse 11. He says, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Do you expect me? He says, Shall, shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? Do you expect me to do this while my comrades are fighting battle? As you live and as your soul lives, this is what Uriah the Hittite says, I will not do this thing. Verse 12. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to go to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if, the king, if, if, if his anger arises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near to the wall? Then you, sh you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent to him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archer shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. Verse 26 when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore a son. But the thing that David did had displeased the Lord. Notice what it says at the end of verse 27. But the thing that David did displeased the Lord. So what we see when we read 2 Samuel chapter 11, we see the sin between David and, and Bathsheba. We see this sin that David committed. And to cover up this act, David attempted many different things. He said, hey, bring Uriah to me. I'm going to give him an opportunity to go home so he can sleep with his wife, so I can cover up what I've done. Well, that didn't work, so he got him drunk and said, maybe then he will go and he will sleep with his wife so that this will cover up my sin. Well, none of those two things worked, so the only way to take this problem away was to kill Uriah, to have him killed. David had Uriah killed. In chapter 12, Nathan rebukes David. Look at it with me. Chapter 12 and verse 1, he says, 
And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, gives him a parable. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or her to to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Look at David's response in verse 5. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Well, look at, look at what Nathan said in verse 7. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because, they, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. Take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the sun. Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. 2 Samuel, all of chapter 11 and in 12, we see the context that builds to this repentant prayer in Psalm 51. I know that that was a lot of reading, but that gives us context to see the nastiness of that sin. But what what I want us to notice and what we're going to look at as we look at Psalm 51 is that David said that this displeased the Lord. David said, I have sinned against the Lord. His sin was against the Lord. And what we see as we, as we get into Psalm 51 and 1 through 12, you'll see that I have this titled, Rejoice in Repentance, because it doesn't, it doesn't end here in 2 Samuel for David. There is repentance. Spoiler alert, there is repentance. And joy is restored back to David. So we rejoice in repentance, because that is a mark of sanctification for the believer and the love of the Father that he would forgive us. Let's look at it. Flip on over to Psalm 51. We're going to be in verses 1 through 12. We're going to have three points 
under the point of rejoicing in repentance and how we can rejoice in repentance. Well, our first point that we're going to come to this morning, it won't be on your screens, so listen closely and write this down. Rejoice in God's character. Our first point this morning is going to be to rejoice in God's character. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 51. I'll read all of it and then we'll come back. So we've got a, a bulk reading of what we're going to be in. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when, the, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. That's what we just got done reading. Verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop. And I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. And restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Let's pray. Dear God, I come to you right now, God, and I just ask as we, as we go through your scripture that you would implant the truth of your scripture on our hearts. God, that you would open the hearts, the minds, the ears of all in here. Lord, that we would take the truth of your scripture, Lord, that we would hear it and apply it to our lives. Lord, I pray, God, as I, as I preach this message, as I preach this word, God, that you would hide me behind the truth of your scripture. Lord, we love you. Amen. Again, our first point this morning is to rejoice in God's character. And that's exactly what we see in the first two verses of Psalm 51. We see David appealing to the character of God. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Do you notice the emotion of David in this psalm? Do you notice the emotion that he brings forth when he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your mercy. It's not, Have mercy on me, O God, I've messed up, I've made a mistake. But it's, God, I have sinned against you, your holy and righteous standard. Do you see the emotion in this psalm? David is broken over his sin. He pleads with God to have mercy on his soul. David is saying, I know your character, God. I know that you are a God of steadfast love. I know that you are a God of mercy. And I know that you are the only one that can cleanse me from my sin. David's only hope in the consciousness of his sin that was before him was God's grace. Our only hope in the consciousness of our sin is God's grace. In verse 2, he says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. In verse 2, David pleads with God to wash the nastiness, to wash the grossness of the sin and transgression from him. This is a sincere and a humble cry for mercy. 
David knows that he doesn't even come close to deserving God's grace, yet he pleads and he appeals on behalf of his character, and he humbly seeks God's love and mercy. David says, have mercy on me. Do you see the picture? Do you see the picture here? Do you notice the, I can only, I can only imagine the, the position of David and, and how he was on his knees begging and asking God for his mercy. This cry for mercy is humble because David knows that God would be just to leave him just like he is. And for us too, and for David as well, to understand the heart of God, it tells us, for us to understand the heart of God, it tells us that though God would be just to leave David in his sin, though God would be just to leave us in our sin, he didn't because he loves his children. He didn't because he loves David. He wants David to seek with a heart of repentance forgiveness from him because he is the only one that can provide that. A truly repentant heart is broken over its sin. A truly repentant heart is falling at the feet of Jesus, the only place where sufficient grace can be found. The only place, where verse 2, where we can be washed thoroughly and cleansed from our sin. This is the only place that we are given grace with no screens attached. This isn't like when you've done wrong to your parents and you've got to give your dad 24 hours because he's upset with you. We don't serve a father that way. That's why we have a hard time comprehending the grace that we get. This grace that God gives is a free gift to us, those that are his children. No strings attached. This isn't like an earthly father's love, though many of us have awesome fathers that are gracious to us. I know if I made my dad mad and he was awesome, I wanted to give him at least 30 minutes. At least 30 minutes or it, or it wasn't going to be good for me. But praise God that his grace is sufficient for us and we don't have to give him time. The grace that he gives us, that he extends to us, comes with no strings attached. The father's love for us is steadfast. It's immovable. It's never ending. It's always there for us and sufficient. When we read the first two verses of this psalm, we can be encouraged by what we see in God's character. David was desperately appealing to God's character, his character of steadfast love, his character of mercy, his character to the, of the ability to cleanse him from his sin. Many of us may read this and say, man, I have been there. I have been there and desperately in a cry for mercy and for God's love in my life, when, when sin is at the forefront of our minds, when we know that we have sinned against a holy God, maybe we feel like that. And oftentimes in the realization of our sin, we feel shame and we feel discouragement. But thankfully, David wasn't left there. I see, that, I see this as something that we can rejoice in because God doesn't leave us there just like he didn't leave David there. The convicting work of the Holy Spirit that breaks us over our sin and leads us to repentance is something that we can rejoice in because that's God's love on display for his children. Our first point was to rejoice in God's character. We rejoice in God's character because he has the ability to give us steadfast love. He has the ability to give us unending mercy. Remember the song that we just sung. Thrown into a sea of forgetfulness. Our sins are many, but his mercy is more. And praise God that his mercy is more. On to our second point, verses 3 through 5, is to rejoice in conviction, to rejoice in confession. Rejoice in conviction and to rejoice in confession. 
verse 3. It says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Undoubtedly, David is feeling the weight of his sin. The sin in, in David's life was un, impossible for him to forget. It was at the forefront of his mind. This wasn't one little thing that he did and he said, oh, it's okay, it's, it's not a big deal. David could not get this off of his mind. His sin was ever before him. And this truly is a sign of repentance, a heart that seeks repentance you know that David was broken over his sin. We're no different than David. We are sinful human beings, and we struggle with sin each and every day. And you know the feeling that David feels because each of us struggle with that. And we know that that sin is at the forefront of our minds. But praise God that it doesn't end there. Verse 4, he goes on. He says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He knows, David knows that he has sinned against God. David humbly confesses his sin. He acknowledges that he has sinned against God and God only. We read this in 2 Samuel 12 and verse 13. What did David say? David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David didn't say, I have sinned against Bathsheba. I have sinned against Uriah. I have sinned against my men in the field that are fighting. No, he said, I have sinned against the Lord. The parable that Nathan used with David enraged him. David soon found out that he was the man in the parable. And at that point, David realized the weight of his sin. Most certainly, what we, what we take from this is most certainly others were affected by the sin of David. Yes, Bathsheba was affected. Uriah lost his life and they lost a son. Terrible things. This doesn't lessen the fact, but the sin, sin in its definition, is rejection against a holy God. And David knew that his sin was against God. The second part of verse 4, it says, So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. I believe that sec the second part of verse 4 is so well explained by Romans 3. Romans 3, verses 3 and 4, I'll read that for you. You don't have to flip to it. It says, What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though. Everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. If you look at Romans 3, 3, and 4, you can answer the question that, that Paul gives. He says, what if, what if some were unfaithful? Well, were some unfaithful? Yes, every single one of us. All people are sinful. Therefore, God is justified in his judgment to all people. Thankfully, though, what we see in the Psalms as we, as we continue to track through Psalm 51 and what we see in Romans 3, verses 3 and 4, we see that we can rest in the fact that as God's, God's children, our faithlessness does not nullify God's faithfulness. God remains faithful to us even when we are unfaithful to him. Praise God that despite our unfaithfulness, God still remains faithful to us. And if you were here a couple of months ago, I preached out of James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. And, and in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, what James does is he, he is reminding these people of the passions that are at war within them. And he uses an example to show them the weight of their sin, to show them what their sin looks like. He uses the illustration of an adulterous relationship. And if you go back and you go and read that, you'll see in verse 6 of chapter 4 that James writes, but he gives more grace. 
He gives more grace than the adulterous spouse. And we are the adulterous spouse because we are unfaithful to God. But praise God that he gives more grace. And praise God that we receive that grace from God. In verse 5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. verse 5, what we see is that we can't take this to be literally. David doesn't mean that he was sinfully conceived. What David means is that even since birth, he has had a sin nature. And when we read this, we have to trace this all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. We have to trace this all the way back to the beginning of the time in the fall where sin entered the world. When Adam and Eve were disobedient to God, they ate of the tree that God commanded them not to, and sin entered the world. At this point, there was a problem, and this problem had to be fixed. Now, we're on the other side of the cross. The solution to that problem was a perfect son. His name was Jesus Christ, who died on the cross as a sacrifice so that we can be reconciled back into, into union with God. Jesus bridged the gap. But each of us, because sin entered the world, each of us are born into sin. This again shows that David is taking responsibility for his sin. What David is saying by this verse is, I have no excuse There's no excuse that I can give. This verse when it says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This isn't a cop-out. This isn't a cop-out to say, I was born into sin, I really can't help it. No, David is taking full responsibility of his disobedience and his rejection against the Lord. In verses 3 through 5, we see a true heart of repentance in David. I praise God for what we see in these verses. We see the conviction of sin at work here. Based on David's confession in these three verses, we can rejoice in the fact that we are convicted of our sin. Though in the conviction of our sin, we feel the shame and the discouragement for a moment, it doesn't end there. Praise God that it doesn't end there. We rejoice in conviction and confession but it, because it points us to the only one that can make it right. And that's God. As we move into the last section of our scripture, we see that David is not only satisfied to be cleaned from his sin, but he seeks to be renewed and restored in Christ. And that's what it should look like for us. When we sin against God, we should most definitely confess and repent of that. But our motivation behind that should be so that we can be renewed and restored into the presence of Christ. So our third point, our final point this morning is to rejoice in restoration. Rejoice in restoration. Verse 6. It says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David here is seeking more than behavior modification. Rather, he is seeking a change of his heart and his mind entirely. He wants more than to just do better and to be better. But he, his motivation behind this is his love for the Lord. He's seeking God's wisdom to change him. Not only to change the good or the bad deeds that he does, but that it would be a practice for him to be obedient to God. The wisdom that we find to war against sin is found in the truth of Scripture. And when we walk out of these double doors... Life is not easy. Each one of us, no matter how mature or immature we are in our relationship with Christ, we have to war against sin. Well, how do we war against sin if this is not a priority in our lives? Well, it's not possible. We all will fail 
even if we're in this every day, we're still going to fail because we are not perfect this side of eternity. But for us to properly war against sin is to root ourselves in Scripture. And that's what he says. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. The wisdom that we find is in the truth of Scripture. To war against that, we have to root ourselves in the truth of Scripture. He says, God delights in truth in the inward being. Psalms 51 and verse 17, if you look down just a few verses, it says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You read this verse, Psalm 51, 17, and you see a picture of a repentant heart. The truth of the inward being is that we've sinned against God and we fall short of God, of his standard. David has fallen short of his standard. He has sinned against God. But in, in 51, 17, it says, The sacrifices of God are a broken, and trite, a broken spirit, a broken and contrite spirit, O God, you will not despise. David's heart was broken. David's heart was broken over his sin, and God does not despise that. David is seeking repentance. He continues in verse 7. He says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. David says, Purge me with hyssop. Many of you may not know what hyssop is. That may be a foreign word to you. Uh, hyssop was a plant in the, in, in, in the Old Testament times. This was a plant with hairy leaves and branches that people would use to, for, for different cleansing ceremonies. This was used to cleanse leprous people. The hyssop branch was used for the most unclean people. This is why David mentions this. What David, just, what David is saying, the irony of what we see here, is that David needed more than the cleansing ability of the hyssop branch, but rather the sufficient cleansing ability of a holy and a perfect God. Only God could make right the sin in David's life. David sought to be completely cleansed through and through. That's why he says, purge me. Purge me, clean me from the inside out. Get the nastiness and the grossness of this sin out of me. And I'll give you an illustration that you'll probably never in your life hear Caleb Hughes use ever. It's just like purging crawfish. I, I, don't, I don't do a whole lot of purging crawfish. I just eat them, but I did look up what it meant. Uh, so I guess I'm in the same boat as Caleb. But what it means to purge crawfish before you eat them, you have, they have to be cleaned from the inside out because you don't want to eat something that's nasty. Well, it's the same. I think this is a good illustration that we can relate back to what David is saying when he says, purge me, clean me from the inside out entirely. This is David. David seeks to be clean. This is a heart that is repentant, a heart that seeks to be renewed and restored. Verse 8, he says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. What a cry for true restoration that we see in verse 8. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken, let them rejoice. David longs to be restored, restored with the joy of being in God's presence. One who is repentant, one who is repentant craves a fresh sense of God's presence in their life to be purified, to be purged of the uncleanliness, to be set straight on the path. In other words, when we are truly repentant, we are seeking to be in the presence of God and we are serious about turning from our sin. Repentance doesn't mean that you, here's the sin, you turn and you walk this way never to come into contact with that sin again. That's not at all what that means. Repentance is in the heart. Repentance is a desire to run from that sin. Even if we fall back into that sin, we continue to run from that sin into the arms of Christ. 
Into the arms of Christ is where we find our home, is where we find our forgiveness, is where we find our grace. It's where we find our restoration. Again, this goes beyond just wanting to do better, but rather an attitude and a life motivated by our love for God and our desire to be obedient to Him. Again, we don't want to just be better people. This isn't about behavior modification, but rather this is about our love for our Lord and not wanting to be disobedient to Him. David's plea is that in the midst of his brokenness over his sin he could rejoice in the restoration that he finds in the loving and gracious arms of God. And maybe that's you. Maybe, that's the, maybe you feel the weight of sin on you right now, and maybe you just long to be restored by Christ. Well, let me tell you the truth, not from me, but from the truth of Scripture. We can find that in Christ. We find that in our Heavenly Father. He gives us the restoration that we seek. Jump to verse 9. Verse 9 says, hide your face from my sins, blot out all of my iniquities. David seeks to be entirely cleansed with no pollution of his sin left in him. David is asking God to no longer look upon his sin, to completely blot out, to remove this sin. And when I look at, when I read verse 9 and it says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities, it reminds me of Micah chapter 7 and verse 19. Micah 7 and verse 19 says, He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of a sea. That's a love that you and I are not able to grasp. That's a grace with no strings attached that we cannot possibly understand. Don't take my word for it. Take the truth of Scripture. He says, You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. This defines the song that we just sung. Our sins are many, but your mercy is more. As we kind of close up, let's look at verse 10. A couple of more verses here. Verse 10, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. The 51st Psalm hinges on this verse specifically because David's heart, David's desire, and his repentance is that a a renewed spirit and restoration would happen. David longs to be renewed in the spirit and the presence of God. David is earnestly seeking restoration through repentance. What we see here in in David's plea, just by what we see in verses 1 1 and 2, when he is praying to the character of God, to his steadfast love, to his unending mercy, we see that the human heart is only and can only be changed by divine agency. And that divine agency is God. David is asking God to restore something that was already there. He sees that through his sin that his spirit needs to be restored and God is the only one that has the power to restore that, is, that which is broken. And something that we can rejoice in this morning is that even in our sin as followers of Christ, when we do sin, our sin never separates us from God because the sacrifice of Jesus was once for all. That means that we have eternal security. It means that no longer are we separated by our sin because sin was defeated on the cross of Calvary. So when we read this, we can be encouraged by the fact that we don't have to just rest in the discouragement and the shame that we find. We know that we are restored. We know that God 
in his forgiveness to us will create in us a clean heart and he will renew a right spirit within us. Verse 11 says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. This can come off as a little bit of a confusing verse. This doesn't mean that we can lose our salvation. All of Scripture proclaims the eternal security that we have in our relationship with the Lord. Some have taken this to imply that the Holy Spirit can be taken from someone. We know that that's not the case. Others have suggested that the Holy Spirit here is viewed in the role of preserving David's kingship. Right, But if we understand the function of the Psalms, the Psalm, Psalm is a song. This Psalm 51, this is a song that would have been sung amongst the congregation of people just like we have. So this isn't talking about, I don't believe that this is talking about David's personal kingship. But what I want, what I want us to see here is that the point that we have to understand and the point that David is making is that if strict justice were God's only consideration, he would have the right to bring judgment on those who sin. Well, we all fall into that camp because we all sin. The only possible appeal for us is to his mercy. This psalm functioned to point these people to be dependent on God and to never presume upon his grace. It does the same for us. And for me, the, the ways that I have practiced this is maybe for me in, in, in times of my life, I have had to come back to this psalm, Psalm 51, and this be my prayer, to recite this prayer and even sing this song in Psalm 51. And now let's close up in Psalm 51 and verse 12. David ends and he says, he ends here and he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. David appeals again to God and asks him to restore him to the joy that he has in his relationship with God. Do you hear the cry of David? He wants this restoration, this renewal of his spirit to be brought back. That he experiences in his salvation. That he experiences in the Lord, in the presence of the Lord. This joy that he is seeking is the joy of 1 Peter verse, chapter 1 and verse 8. 1 Peter 1 and verse 8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice, check this out, with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. This is David's heart. David seeks restoration. He seeks the joy to be restored to him that we see in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 8, a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. He then says, in the second stanza, he says, and uphold me with a willing spirit. In this verse, David is humbly admitting that he cannot war against sin alone. Left to his own doings, he will fall. David is asking God to guide him and to, I believe, literally hold him up. To literally hold him up. And it may be like, if you're so tired, you can't even make it to the bedroom to get in the bed and you need somebody to help you. Well, it's the same in our relationship with the Lord. We are weak people. But praise God, we don't just depend on our own strength. We depend on the strength that we find in our relationship with the Lord. So as we close this morning, I want to just for a second talk about what this means for us. We have been taught the truth of Scripture. We have seen the context and the account of David and Bathsheba. We know that the main thing that we see is that David has sinned against God, a holy God. David seeks restoration in his repentance. 
So how do we apply this? Well, we apply this with the points that we've been given. It's to rejoice in God's character. How do we rejoice in God's character? Not being defeated by your sin because you look back at Psalm 51 verse verse 1 and 2 and you are reminded of God's steadfast love. Steadfast means immovable. It means that it is unwavering. It's not going anywhere. We rejoice in God's character by reminding in our def- when we feel defeated by sin, when we defeat ourselves in our sin, we are reminded of God's character. We apply this by rejoicing in the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. We don't see this as a bad thing, but we praise God. Thank you, God, for showing me my sin. Thank you, God, for revealing to me my sin and pointing me to you where I find forgiveness in you. Finally, we rejoice in restoration through repentance. And we understand that we don't stay in our shame and our our guilt and our discouragement and our sin, but we're delivered from that because sin was defeated. And it's a beautiful picture that we see on this side of the cross because we see in the account of the Gospels, four of them, where Jesus has defeated sin at the cross of Calvary. So we rejoice in restoration through repentance. And maybe we, maybe we apply this and we find ourselves at a point where maybe a good physical application of this is to just come to this psalm and make this your prayer to the Lord. This is me many times. This is me many times. I have to come and, and, and pray this prayer because our sin is ever before us. So maybe it's to pray this prayer. Maybe it's to sing this psalm. I listened to a, uh, a sermon by John Piper on Psalm 51. So if you want to hear it way better, just go listen to that. Um, but I was listening to a sermon by John Piper on Psalm 51. And, and he, as far as a point of application to his people, he said to just to live in this psalm. Live in this psalm. Root yourself in the psalm. And I think that that's a good word of application. And that would be us rooting ourselves in Scripture. And how do we do that if we don't spend time in God's Word? Finally, a statement I'll close with for the believer. Don't remain broken over your sin. Understand that God's grace delivers you from that. Rejoice in repentance because that's the result of God sanctifying you. A repentant heart, God does not despise. And finally, rest in the joy of the salvation that you have in God. Oh, what beautiful rest and oh, what beautiful joy it is. It really is, 1 Peter 1.8, joy that is inexpressible. And finally, for the unbeliever, it's to stop believing the lie that you have done too much. Oh, I have done way too much. I, I am way too guilty. No way that God can forgive me. That's a lie. Look at the example that we've seen in 2 Samuel in Psalm 51. Look at what David did. David was a real person. This is an, this is an account of real events. This isn't just some story. This really did happen. God forgave David. Do not believe the lie that God can't forgive you. So maybe for you, it's to stop believing that lie and for the first time to repent and believe and experience the joy of salvation that you find in Christ. The joy and the rest, and I can speak from experience as being a follower of Christ, it's not easy. You have to count the cost of following Jesus, but 
the joy truly is inexpressible. Like, I'm, I'm trying right now to think of how I can explain that to you, but I genuinely can't because it is inexpressible. And in my desire, if there is anyone in here that doesn't know the Lord, I, I want you to experience the joy of salvation. Gosh, it is beautiful. I'm just reminded of, I'm reminded of the night that I went to Wednesday night church and I didn't want to be there, but praise God, I had good parents. They made me go to church. I went, I didn't even listen. Uh, a guy by the name of uh, Brother James Hughley was giving his testimony. We were doing testimonies on Wednesday night and uh, don't, don't know what he said and really didn't care up until the point at the end where he asked a question. He said, do you know where you would go if you died? And I'm like, save it, dude. I've heard this 100,000 times. Quit trying to make me feel guilty. Well, God decided in that time to draw me unto himself. And I went home that night, and I, I, like I had before, I tried to push that away. I tried to push that away. I, I sat in the chair and was watching a movie called Home Run. And the Lord was continuing to work on me. And I, I went up to my bedroom, and I fell flat on my face in my floor and don't even remember what I prayed, but I know that God saved me. And the joy that I experienced from that truly is inexpressible. And I want every single person to, to experience that. So for the believer... Maybe it's to remind yourself of the joy of your salvation. And maybe for the unbeliever, it's to, for the first time, repent and believe and experience the joy of salvation.